The sea has always been a place of mystery, filled with unknown creatures and stories lurking just beneath the surface. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we investigate the relationship between opera and the seas. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. The sea provides a vast array of opportunities for storytelling in operas. Despite being composed at different times and locations, composers and librettists have adapted the theme of the sea in unique ways. I'm Stuart Holt, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we begin the first of two episodes with Guild lecturer Desiree Mays as she takes a detailed examination of these operas relating to the sea. Welcome to Opera and the Sea. I'm Desiree Mays. This turned out to be an intriguing project, for there's not just the sea in opera, but rivers, lakes, ponds, lagoons, sea caves, wells, even fountains showed up in many, many great works over time. I was seeking operas in which the sea or water, and I'll use those terms interchangeably, were at the heart of the plot, driving or reflecting on the action. Occasionally the sea itself became the protagonist in a work like Moby Dick, The ever-changing waters reflect moods of calm and turmoil, often in the very souls of the characters themselves. The metaphor of the sea may also be a vehicle by which a composer expresses himself, his beliefs, values, even his or her personal life. Richard Wagner, in his great ring cycle, suggests that humankind came from water and may well return to it in the great scheme of things. So I'd like to look at some of these connections between the sea and opera and see how different composers use this concept in their music. Water is referred to in so many operas, I could just list what I found, but that would be boring. So I have narrowed the list to the most interesting and diverse examples for this talk. You may want to add or subtract from my examples. There is no right or wrong here. This is a subjective exercise. The sound of water can express calm, happiness, storm, danger, fear, grief. Always a challenge, it is a force to be reckoned with, one that moves relentlessly forward, inevitably carrying us and the music with it in the ebb and flow of the turning tides. Characters find love in proximity to water. Many also die, commit suicide, or are murdered in watery depths. Vast stretches of water from all over the world are represented in opera, from the sea surrounding Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, in the pearl fishes, to the babbling brook in which Susanna bathes in Carlisle Floyd's Susanna. Floyd, in this case, took the biblical story and set his opera in New Hope Valley, Tennessee. The water in which Susanna bathes becomes a creek, or crick, in the Tennessee hills. Then there is the great river Thames in London, into which Falstaff is unceremoniously dumped from a laundry basket by the Merry Wives of Windsor in one of Verdi and Shakespeare's lighter moods. The sea is mood-inducing. 
Sometimes it lies in states of seeming idyllic calm, presenting an unruffled surface that may be deceptively hiding swirling currents of emotions underneath, so akin to our own feelings of life. The waters can be restless, invoking feelings of reaching forward and falling back, of waves reaching up the shore and then receding rhythmically, inevitably. In a storm, the sea bills a crescendo of anger and fear, threatening to devour all before it. All these images are evoked by many composers, who often use the sea as a musical metaphor for the internal states of mind of their characters. I'll talk about many of these examples in these two podcasts on opera and the sea, and then focus on one composer and their relationship with water in each talk. Today the focus will be on Benjamin Britten, a man of the sea if ever there was one, literally, figuratively, emotionally, geographically, and above all, musically. To begin with, however, I'd like to start out with an amusing story that involves a river, the Thames in London, a composer, George Frederick Handel, and his noble patron, King George, in a true story from the year 1717. Handel had been the court composer to George the Elector of Hanover, but he abandoned the Elector's court because he preferred living and composing at the English court. When George the Elector became the King of England in 1714, Handel found himself deeply out of favour. He resolved the dilemma in an unconventional way. King George expressed a desire to enjoy a concert on the River Thames. It was duly reported that on the evening of July 17th, quote, the king repaired to his royal barge with members of the court. Next to the king's barge was that of the musicians, about 50 in number, who played all kinds of instruments. Unbeknownst to the king, the music had been composed by Handel, his former employee who was in disgrace. His majesty approved of the music so much that he caused it to be repeated three times, end quote. And this, I promise you, is nearly an hour-long piece. Thus, Handel's famous water music was born, healing the rift between the king and his errant court composer. Imagine this scene as you listen to some of this lovely music. days of opera, composers based their work on Greek myths, which were typically set on Greek islands or the Aegean Sea. Mozart continued this tradition when he composed Idomeneo, an opera seria based on a Greek tale of a father, Idomeneo, who makes a deal with Neptune, god of the sea, that if Neptune saves Idomeneo's ship in a terrifying storm, Idomeneo will sacrifice the first person he meets on coming ashore to the sea god. As luck would have it, the first person he sees is his son, Idamante. 
The opera then revolves around Idomeneus trying to get out of his promise to the vengeful god. Neptune here is a metaphor for the sea, that vast resource which provided life itself for the Greek people. In Idomeneo, the sea has been described as running like a stream and long stretches in a narrow channel, dashing suddenly over a precipice and at intervals broadening out into a vast and tranquil lake always moving onwards and gathering force until it reaches its ultimate goal. Here is a chorus of the frightened Greeks begging Neptune to save them from the angry sea, Baroque style. The gods' fury has whipped up the sea, Neptune have mercy, they plead. So this gives you a sense of storm, Greek style, from Mozart. I have been in the storm and the sea in the Greek islands, and I promise you it was terrifying. Let's hear now from operas in which the sea directly motivates the action in its mood, its sound, and its very impact on the characters involved. Giuseppe Verdi clearly loved the sea, particularly the Mediterranean, and featured it prominently in his operas. Perhaps the greatest storm scene in all opera is the opening of Otello. Here are Verdi's stage directions. The exterior of a castle on Cyprus, ramparts and the sea. It is evening. Thunder, lightning, wind. Flashes of lightning reveal a ship battling against a storm. Finally, it reaches harbour and Otello disembarks. This is Verdi's storm a tempest that will rise and unleash itself in Otello's heart, a storm that envelops Cassio and Iago and which ultimately destroys Desdemona. Here is the opening storm as the spectators on the shore describe the wild sea. Bocanegra is set around the port of Genoa, where Verdi spent the winters of his later years. Jules Massenet visited Verdi in his apartment in Genoa in 1894, when Verdi was 81, 
and reported. Verdi threw open the French windows and drew me onto the terrace from where one saw the marvellous harbour of Genoa. That, Verdi said, pointing to the view before us, is my inspiration. Massenet recalled, My most vivid recollection of that visit is of Verdi himself. I shall always see him, bareheaded and upright beneath the scorching sun, showing me the iridescent town and the golden sea beneath us, with a gesture as proud as his genius and as simple as his beautiful artist soul. It was almost an evocation of one of the great doges of the past, stretching over Genoa his powerful and beneficent hand. In the final act of Simon Boccanegra, as he lies dying from poison, Boccanegra looks out of the great windows that overlook the harbour of Genoa and sings, The sea breeze, the sea, the sea, seeing it again brings back memories of glorious deeds. Earlier in the same opera, Verdi describes a calm sea on a sunny day, with rippling waves lapping gently on the shore, as Amelia, Boccanegra's daughter, walks by the edge of the Mediterranean. She sings this cavatina as the sun rises over the sea at dawn. The rippling waves echo the harmony in Amelia's heart. The sea and the singer are as one, at peace, both with a sense of hopeful expectation as to what the day or the next tide will bring. Amelia is sung here by Victoria de Los Angeles. Listen for the rippling five-note phrases of the sea. providing sense and sound, the sea in Vaughan Williams' little-known opera, Riders to the Sea, plays the leading role within the opera plot itself. In this next excerpt, the sea is a frightening power that takes from a poor woman her husband and five sons. The keening of the mother mourning her sons is a universal sound. These words from the end of the opera are addressed to the sea. They are all gone now, and there isn't anything more the sea can do to me. I've no call now to be crying and praying when the wind breaks from the south, and you can hear the surf in the east and the surf in the west making a great stir, and they hitting one on the other. You can hear the actual sea in this excerpt, along with the keening and mourning of the women.
This unique, very short opera was composed by Vaughan Williams in 1925. He called it a play set to music, and in fact the text is line for line from Riders to the Sea, the play by the Irish writer John Millington Singh. It tells of Maury, a poor woman in the west of Ireland, whose husband and sons are consumed by the sea. The text conjures up multiple layers of emotional responses to the natural world in a losing battle with the wild Atlantic seas of the West Irish coast. The sea doesn't change, you know, on that coast. It is as wild today, crashing high against the black cliffs as it has always been. Continuing the theme of the sea as a violent, vengeful force, let's look at a contemporary opera by Jake Heggie, Moby Dick. Moby Dick is set entirely on board the ship, the Pequod. The captain Ahab obsessively seeks the great white whale hidden in the oceans of the deep. In this opera, the endless sea is a microcosm of the world itself, a world in which the ruthless Ahab is ultimately destroyed as he, his ship, and all hands sink to the bottom of the pitiless sea, while the oblivious waters return to calm as if nothing had happened. The story of Moby Dick is based on a true story written by a man who spent many years at sea, Herman Melville. The sea is all-encompassing for those at sea, and when tragedy strikes, they sing of being lost in the heart of the sea. The crazed Ahab seeks the white whale who crippled him years before, but the sea will not give up its own, and Ahab cannot win against such a force of nature. The opening of the opera is calm. The sea is restless, but not threatening. The men of the Pequod prepare to sail. Together they venture forth through all the billows and troughs and the sea of life, which inevitably becomes the sea of death. Much of the secret of Jake Heggie's Moby Dick success lies in the use of projections, which everybody approached with some apprehension when they first appeared. In Moby Dick, they are used with extraordinary effect, for the projections presented a real ship and a real sea in all its moves. This new stage technology has made the impossible possible, and in the case of Moby Dick, the projections are fascinating never taking over from the plot or the action, but maintaining the constant presence of the unpredictable sea throughout. As I play you the opening of the opera, imagine this. Sitting in the theatre, the whole ceiling appears to be covered with the stars of a night sky. In a magical piece of stage projection and engineering, the stars move to form the prow of a great whaling ship, as the music swells, the great ship seems to move backwards until it stops and becomes the set of the ship on stage, while the projections continue to move upstage behind the ship as the opera begins. Here are two brief examples. The opening of the opera describing the sea and the whalers, the men, singing, lost in the heart of the sea.
In complete contrast to Moby Dick, the Finnish composer Kaya Sariaho in her opera L'Amour de Loin presents a very different sea. This opera tells of a troubadour separated by the sea, the Mediterranean in this case, from his beloved in medieval times. This is a much more gentle take on the sea. Here the sea projects loneliness and longing, a meditative sea that carries us to places of deep introspection. This tale of courtly love tells of the troubadour Joffre, who loves his mistress from afar, until the day when, yearning to see her, he takes up the cross of a crusader and sails from France to her castle in Tripoli, Lebanon. Filled with impressionistic sound, this score, at once tender and philosophical, is composed in an adagio spirit that is reflective and lyrical. The sea at all times echoes the poet's mood. The prelude, entitled The Crossing, is marked lento misterioso, sempre calmo, and dolcissimo espressivo. It opens with a slow chord rising from the amorphous depths that is then carried and borne aloft by high woodwinds. Harps and percussion provide colour and form as the swell builds like the sea before dying down. There is a subtle use of electronic instruments in this score which enhances the whole. In Cayasariaho's own words, this is music that vibrates in instrumental colours. It is not a rhythmic energy. There's not a lot of action, hardly any. The pacing is slow, gentle, the conflict internal. Time almost ceases to exist. In Lamour de Loin, the sea is both a gulf and a bridge, a literal force giving the story a shape and a sense of timelessness. In the Met production, long strips of computer-programmed LED lights glimmer and undulate across the stage to evoke the effect of the ever-present sea as it changes according to the different times of day. One of the challenges of this piece is that you have to have water on stage. How do you do that? the director asked. For me, the shimmering of the sea provided the clue of how to stage this. It's a very luminous production. Although the shimmering effects are not just there for the effect, they're actually accompanying the music. The subtext of the music is about the different humours of the sea and how that affects the storyline and the psychological background. You're swallowed by these waves of music and it reaches you in a very subliminal way. It's a very magical, bewitching, hypnotic aesthetic. Here is the meditative prelude to L'Amour de Loin.
A more tempestuous opening to a sea opera is the start of Thomas Addis's The Tempest. Listen to this, complete with thunder and lightning, as Prospero magically raises a storm to shipwreck his rivals. Such a contrast in terms of orchestration to the majestic storm at the start of Verdi's Otello. tell you a story about water on stage. When the Santa Fe Opera produced The Tempest, the stage instructions directed that the sea surrounding Prospero's Island should come from the footlights and up onto the stage as the shipwrecked travellers, that is the singers, struggle to make their way ashore. The amazing stage crew devised a water tank or trough into which the singers would submerge themselves on the side of the stage out of sight of the audience, dive down, swim a bit onto the stage, and emerge dripping wet as they came ashore. This was very effective, though not much fun for the singers, some of whom objected and had doubles replace them in this watery entrance, especially those who had to sing as they came out of the water. There are other operas in which water on stage is called for. In the tales of Hoffmann, Giulietta and Hoffmann drift in a gondola on the Grand Canal in Venice to the strains of the famous Baccarat. Some operas are a little less challenging to stage, set such as the Bay of Naples in the distance in Cosivantute, or the moored barge on the Seine in Il Tabaro. Originally, these sets would all have been done with painted backdrops. We've come a long way from the painted backdrops of yesteryear, to the cinematic projections of today. Let's take a little diversion now to a lake, not the sea, and hear a little of La Donna del Lago, The Lady of the Lake, Rossini's opera which is set on the poem by Walter Scott. At the start of the opera, the Scottish king, in disguise as a hunter, watches in amazement as a beautiful girl rows herself in a small boat across Lake Catrine in Scotland. She sings, O matutini albori, O beautiful dawn, Night becomes day as dawn breaks again, The stream will vanish in the darkness, Then ripple again in fresh abundance. <laughs>
This, of course, is the one and only Joyce Didonato. Joyce sang the role of Ellen in La Donna del Lago in Santa Fe some years ago, and of course she also sang it here at the Metropolitan Opera. In the last part of this talk, I'd like to focus on two of Benjamin Britten's operas, Billy Budd and Peter Grimes, both of which are sea operas. Both come from the creativity and life experiences of their composer, Benjamin Britten, who was born, lived and died by the sea on the east coast of England between 1913 and 1976. The sea flows through these two operas in all its moods, both calm and stormy, and must have been a metaphor for the composer and his partner, Peter Pierce, who lived at an unforgiving time. Pierce sang the leading roles of Captain Veer and Billy Budd, and was the first Peter Grimes in the original productions. Benjamin Britten composed his great sea operas in the 1940s. Like Moby Dick, Billy Budd is set entirely on board ship and describes the lives of men on a whaling ship in 1797. Listen to the sailors on board the HMS Indomitable singing a sea shanty as they rest below decks, followed by another sea shanty from Peter Grimes, this time the shanty of the fishermen as they relax in a pub. Hear how the second shanty is developed into a round in Old Joe Has Gone Fishing. These little songs kept the men's spirits up, providing community during those long days at sea. The third sea shanty I'm going to play for you is a phenomenon of our time right now, which the New York Times reported on in January. This little shanty was composed by a Scottish mail carrier, Nathan Evans, as a way to cheer himself and his friends up in these difficult times. The little song went viral. You can get the whole shanty online or sing along here with us if you want. Bring me my sugar, tea and rum. So first you'll hear Billy Budd and then the shanty from Peter Grimes, followed by Nathan Evans' recent rendition. We're up to some more, my way to Genoa, no lunch and toa, up with the line of away, up with the line of away, up with the line of away. We're up to some more, up with the line of away. We're towing to Malta, the rock of Gibraltar, with only a halter and Davy Jones lying below. So pray to the devil below, pray to the devil below. was a ship that put to sea the name of the ship was a belly of tea the winds blew up her bow up down below my billy boys blow soon may the weatherman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum one day when the tonguing is done we'll take our leave and go soon may the weatherman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum one day when the tonguing is done we'll take our leave and go 
There is a great coda to the Wellerman shanty. It turns out that Nathan Evans has given up his job as a postman, a mail carrier, and has signed a contract with a major recording company for this song. His comment on his success was, If you keep going, anything can happen. He reminds me a little of Jake Heggie, who worked in the PR department at the San Francisco Opera until he was discovered by Lofty Mansuri, who commissioned him to write an opera, and that opera was Dead Man Walking. Now back to the sea. The story of Peter Grimes came from a poem by George Crabbe, an 18th century clergyman and poet who lived in Orborough, the same sea town on the east coast of England that Benjamin Britten came from. Crabbe wrote a long narrative poem in which he depicted the harsh reality of a fishing community as it struggled to make a living from the sea, at the mercy of the winds and the North Sea tides. He described the sea town as, quote, a poor and wretched place lying between a low hill or cliff on which was an old church and a few houses were situated. There were two parallel unpaved streets, the abodes of seafaring men, pilots and fishers. The houses near the sea suffered so much from repeated invasions of the waves that only a few scattered tenements remained erect. The beach was one of large stones and loose shingle, and at the fall of the tide a strip of grey hard sand. Vessels of all sorts were drawn up along the shore where fishermen prepared their tackle. The gloomy old town hall stood just back from the shore, a flint-towered church sprawls down to the North Sea, and what a wallop the sea makes as it pounds at the shingle. Nearby is a quay at the side of an estuary, and here the scenery becomes melancholy and flat, expenses of mud, sortish commons, the marsh birds crying. The inhabitants of the village spend their evenings in the tavern where, Crab wrote, Tavern lights flit on from room to room and guide the tippling sailor staggering home. Aubrey is actually not too different today, still lying at the mercy of North Sea storms and long, cold, grey days and nights. Crabbe described the bigotry and hypocrisy of the villagers, who defended themselves at any cost against those who did not conform to their ways, men such as Peter Grimes. Fearful of what they do not understand, the villagers malign, hunt down, and ultimately destroy those whom they per perceive to be a threat to their own tenuous survival. On reading Crabbe's poem about the ostracised seaman, Peter Grimes, Benjamin Britten and Peter Piers decided to tell the story in an opera. Britten and Piers clearly identified with the lonely fisherman in his fight against a closed and unforgiving society. Grimes, in their view, becomes the symbol of the artist standing at the edge of his society and a symbol for the two men of their personal situation and their less than total acceptance by British society because of their suspected relationship. At the time, homosexuality was still illegal in England and would be for many years. Britain said, 
A certain feeling for us was that of the individual against the crowd, with ironic overtones for our own situation. They made Grimes a character of vision and conflict, rather than the villain he was in Crab. In both versions, Grimes is a tragic figure who suffers from self-imposed isolation because his proud spirit will not bow to the villagers, and who, in the end, unable to either stay or leave, accepts death in the sea as the only way to end his pain. The music tells us Britain is dealing with an elemental, ominous force here. Is that force the sea itself which both batters the town and provides its livelihood? Or is it the force of the community's antagonism which drives the fisherman, one of its own, to suicide in the sea that is his home? That the sea is the focus is described in the sea interludes, high points of the opera, which contain within themselves the premise, conflict and resolution of the plot. Britain threads these evocative interludes throughout the work, interludes which describe the sea, Grimes' state of mind, and the changing moods of the community. The interludes are frequently performed as standalone concert pieces under the title Peter Grimes' Four Sea Interludes. The opera opens with the dawn interlude, echoing Crabbe's poem, which opens with these lines. The broad bosom of the ocean keeps an equal motion, swelling as it sleeps, then slowly sinking, curling to the strand, faint, lazy waves or creep the rigid sand, or tap the towery boat with gentle blows, and back return in silence, smooth and slow. Here is the music for these lines in the first interlude, Dawn. Later, the restless movement of the waves erupts into a mighty storm in full fury in the second interlude, as Grimes cries to the heavens, What harbour shelters peace, away from tidal waves, away from storms, before lumbering off into the night as the storm interlude describes the wild fury of the wind with gusts of spray blowing across the tops of foaming waves. This rondo-like fugue with grinding clashes in two different keys at once evokes those gusts of wind and spray in the second interlude storm in sounds that describe, along with the sea, the tormented soul of Peter Grimes.
Britain's sea music may be understood as a study of both the state of mind of Grimes and the community against a background of the sea. Britain himself said in 1945 that the opera was about the perpetual struggle of men and women whose livelihood depends on the sea. Britain and Piers lived away from London in Orborough on the Suffolk coast. They founded the Orborough Music Festival of the Arts in 1948, a festival that continues to this day. It is considered one of the most prestigious summer music festivals in Europe. So with this introduction to opera and the sea, I hope you will join me for part two in which I will look at other bodies of water in opera. Lakes, rivers, ponds, wells, sea caves, lagoons, fountains. There is water everywhere. We'll talk about the extraordinary geographic range of these works. Look at lives that ended either by suicide or murder in water. At sea nymphs and spirits who emerged from watery depths. And then look at the connection of Wagner to water. His great ring cycle set in on and around the River Rhine. Parsifal's Lake. The Dutchman's cursed journey on the high seas off Norway. Lohengrin's boat drawn by a swan on a river at Antwerp in the 10th century. So, until then, thank you so much for listening today. That was lecturer Desiree Mays investigating the theme of the sea in opera. Be sure to join us next week for part two of this exciting series. To keep up with all things opera, be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, the Metropolitan Opera, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.